0: This is a Triple J Podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. You know, it's not easy getting to the doctors. We know whether it's the cost, the location, just the time that it takes out of your day to get there. It's frustrating. If you're constantly having to go to the GP every few months for a new script for the pill, you probably pretty happy then with the announcement that came through today that some pharmacies in Australia are going to be able to give it to you without the need for you to go to the doctor first. But not everyone's eligible, and why are some people not happy about this? We're going to be explaining how this trial is working, what parts of the country are included, and if it could be expanded. So stay listening for that. Also coming up, the fight over wind turbines. We're going to be seeing a lot more of them in the years ahead. So how do we deal with the conflicts with communities that are saying, "Nah, not here. First, though, why are morgue workers potentially going on strike? Hack. Workers at several morgues will go on strike over concerns bodies could go missing due to poor data management.
1: On Triple J. When workers
0: have had enough, they'll often strike over things like pay, conditions. We cover it a lot on Hack, whether it's teachers or nurses. What about morgue workers, though? Yeah, the morgue, the place where dead bodies are kept. Because staff at a morgue in New South Wales could be walking off the job. And the reason for this action sounds terrifying. They're worried that changes to the way they work might see bodies go missing. What does this mean? What is going on here? Let's find out. Lachlan Leeming is a reporter with The Daily Telegraph. He's covering this and he's with us now. Hey, Lockie, thanks for coming on Hack. I just want to be clear about what's happening here. So basically, these workers were going to strike today. They've been in furious negotiations all day. The strike has been delayed until Friday, they're saying now, while those negotiations are continuing. What's going on here? Like, what are the issues that these morgue workers say need to be addressed immediately?
2: So, Dave, the the state of play at the moment is that we've got these 16 morgue workers who are at the coroner's court complex in Sydney who are threatening to walk off the job for 24 hours. It's important to mention that the coroner's court complex in Lidcombe there handles the vast majority of suspicious deaths in New South Wales. So potential uh, murder victims, cases where people have been shot dead in gang wars, they all go to this complex. And anyway, the Workers there have two main gripes. One, that they're understaffed. And the other is that they say New South Wales Health, the government body that oversees them, has forced them onto a new database, which they say might result in them actually losing track of bodies. It's a fairly, um, I've covered union strife, for a few years now, but this one is uh, is a bit out of the box to put it uh, to to put it lightly.
0: Yeah, I mean, as I said before, we don't really typically hear from morgue workers too often, but obviously it's an industry, it's something that we rely on a lot. Have you been speaking to the workers themselves? What have they been telling you?
2: Yeah, I've spoken to um, some of the workers. What they've told me basically is that their big fear is this new database they've been pushed to use basically isn't up to scratch. And they're saying that it's even glitched and crashed, which uh, previously has resulted in staff having to manually re-identify every body. And other examples they gave was that sometimes a body will be uh, moved to the, the Sydney complex from, say, Wollongong or Newcastle. They may not get a heads up, and that's a real issue when, um, you know, you're talking about such a sensitive topic and the need for really key information on these bodies, such as um, the state of the body and the state of deterioration, you really need that to be clear information, easy to get. And at the moment, the workers are saying, this
0: new system just doesn't do that. I mean, losing a body sounds wild and there are going to be people listening now going, how would you lose a body? But I guess it makes sense how you're describing it is that the system is supposed to be keeping track of everything. It's obviously there are some failings there. What's the union that represents these morgue workers? Like, what are they having to say?
2: This is the uh, the health services union. And basically what they're saying is that they want an extra five staff there to help with the workload. A lot of the workers told me that they're doing um, 12-hour shifts, and they're starting at all hours to sort of get through the amount of work they've got there. They get about 20 bodies a day, I mean, that's that's a fairly constant stream. And the union basically wants, um, speaking on their behalf, wants five more workers, and it also wants there to be some basically remediation, or mediation, sorry, regarding this system. Because the previous system they had, which the workers called dead base rather than database, um, Wow. They were quite happy with that in-house system. So uh, I think technology, it's moved beyond uh, sort of toe tags like you might see in the movies. So that's where issues with
0: the actual data system, they use uh, rear their head. So if there was a strike, what are the impacts there? Because I imagine there could be all kinds of flow-on effects.
2: Yeah, exactly right. So basically for the length of the strike, it means that that big complex can't release any bodies to funeral directors, basically because there'll be no staff there to sign off on them uh, being released. And it also means bodies which are uh, being kept, which have died from uh, suspicious circumstances, and New South Wales Police recommend they go to this coroner's complex. It also means that, yeah, those new arrivals can't occur. So it means bodies will be kept at hospitals or other uh, holding facilities across the state rather than taken to,
0: um, you know, this major complex. Lockie, have you had a chance to speak to the government about this? Like, what what are they saying?
2: The, uh, the government came back to me last night, New South Wales Health, and basically said they're in a, an ongoing mediation process. They've offered, I understand, 2.6 full-time equivalent workers. The union wants five. And they're also... Um, saying that this new data system they've got in
0: will actually make things a lot more efficient for the workers there. Right. So I guess we we don't know how it's going to play out, but it's interesting just to hear the concerns there. And I'm guessing that there's going to have to be some kind of action. Lockie Leaming with the Daily Telegraph, appreciate you updating us. Thanks very much for joining us on Hack. Thanks very much for having me, Dave. Obviously, keeping everyone across what does happen, we did have that strike supposed to be happening today, has been kind of delayed while those negotiations continue, so I guess we'll see what happens.
2: Hack, what we're focused on is making sure that we can make healthcare available to women in a way that is
0: easy, cost-effective and simple.
1: On Triple Jack.
0: If you're on the pill, you'll know how annoying it is to have to go to the doctor every time you need a new script. Well, depending on where you are in Australia from today, you might not need to do that anymore. A trial has just started in New South Wales that means a lot of people on the pill will be able to just go to the pharmacy to get a resupply of the same medication. Now, Queensland has just started a similar pilot program this week. We know Victoria is also keen to move on this, head in the same direction. If you're on the pill, I'd love to know what you think. Like, what kind of an impact does it have on you? Maybe you're in a remote, a regional area, constantly having to head to the doctors for a new script. So let me know. You can call in one 055 You can message in too, 0439757555. The thing is, not everyone is eligible for this trial and there are some concerns that have been raised about whether it is the right thing to do. Let's find out more. Dr Sarah Deneen Griffin is the lead researcher of this clinical trial in New South Wales and she's with me now. Hey, Sarah, welcome to Hack.
3: Hello, thank you for having me.
0: What is this trial? Like, how is it going to work?
3: So, uh, well, I'm based at a, a university and we are running the clinical trial. It's really providing the research, uh, I suppose, and the evaluation behind uh, what we're doing to make sure that it is safe and effective and we provide quality service to women across New South Wales uh, through our pharmacy network.
0: So who's eligible? What, uh, what people are going to be able to do this and who's not eligible, I guess?
3: Uh, so, with the current trial, uh, which is oral contraceptive, that's launched, uh, that's been launched today across 900 pharmacies in New South Wales. Now, uh, women between the ages of 18 and 35 will be able to access their oral contraceptive pill uh, through our community pharmacy for the first time in New South Wales. Now, that's really exciting in my view, and uh, we are um, making sure that there are safeguards in place, um, particularly to ensure that we are – Uh, or community pharmacists are referring people uh, when they need to to see their GP in the instances that their circumstances may have changed. Um, In order for women to access their oral contraceptive pill, they need to have seen their GP uh, within the last two years and they also need to have been taking their oral contraceptive pill on a regular basis um, so no, no breaks uh, in taking their medication, in which case they can see their community pharmacist and be able to access their next lot of prescriptions uh, for, for their pill.
0: Does it cost any additional money to be getting it this way through the pharmacy?
3: I, uh, it doesn't, no. So um, the New South Wales government is actually funding the consultation component. So uh, it'll be a $20 fee um, that will be paid to pharmacies, which will subsidise the cost of the consultation For a woman to see the pharmacist. Now, uh, what the uh, patient or the the woman who would be um, receiving the service would have to pay for is the cost of the medication itself, Uh, but they don't have to pay for the consultation, as I've just mentioned.
0: Got some messages coming through. Someone says, Pharmacist in Victoria here. This is a fantastic initiative with the contraceptive pill for a medication that is relatively safe and something. Uh, that is needed as always doctors are not happy handing more responsibility to pharmacists that's an opinion there another person says i'm a doctor and i find getting my repeat for the pill annoying so everyone's got an opinion on this sarah why does it stop at 35 because there's probably some people listening now who are going oh that's a bit annoying why hasn't wasn't the age kind of broadened out a little bit more
3: Yeah, that's a good question and it was closely considered during our our design process to make sure that, I guess, the women that were receiving care through pharmacies was appropriate and safe. Um, Now, particularly with the pills that we are um, providing through pharmacies, the, the combined oral contraceptive pill or the progesterone. Um, particularly the combined oral has uh, specific risks uh, and we need to make sure that particularly with age, as, as age increases, also those risks increase. Um, so that's why we've had to um, work uh, to ensure that we have those age ages in place um, because uh, obviously uh, as people get older, then their risk might increase, in which case we need to make sure that they are seeing their GPs and so forth uh, if they are older than 35 years.
0: We've got some messages coming through. Someone says, it's going to be handy, but what will they offer a full box with four months worth or one month at a time? That was from Narika. Another person says, many GPs have removed bulk billing and will only give a few repeats, making it expensive to have access to contraception. It should be available at pharmacies without GP scripts. Let's go to someone who's called in. We've got another Sarah on the line. Sarah, what's your experience? Do you find it... Pretty annoying to have to head to the GP all the time for a new script. Sarah, can you hear me? Oh, and we don't seem to have Sarah there. That's okay. Actually, she might be with us now. Sarah, sorry, what's been your experience? Um, yeah, I find it quite annoying having to go to the GP every couple of months to get a new script. Um, I, I go there, I ask the doctor for a script. They don't actually do any checks like any blood pressure checks or anything, so I feel like it is a bit of a waste of time. Right, okay. So are you going to be able to be using this? Are you in New South Wales or in Queensland, one of the areas where you're going to be able to access this trial? Yeah, I'm in New South Wales. Okay, well, that's good news for you. Let's go back to Dr. Sarah Deneen-Griffin, uh, who we're speaking to about these changes, you know, that this trial that's letting people get the contraceptive pill through pharmacies without having to go to the GP first. Sarah, we just heard from the other Sarah, who said, you know, some of the doctors aren't doing many tests or checkups for people who are getting these new scripts. The argument against this trial is is that it's going to see a lot of women, other people who maybe have constantly been going to the GP, maybe not seeing a doctor for years at a time. How do you respond to that?
3: Yeah, I look, I think that's an important point because... Um, uh when we're, when we're conducting a consultation, particularly the, the way that we've trained pharmacists is making sure that we are capturing the people, uh, particularly that might be of higher risk or that need to be referred. So in the scenario a pharmacy will conduct a consultation, uh, we are looking at BMI and we are looking at blood pressure and that's part of our consultation process. So those safety nets have been put in place. Um, with regards to uh, the GP consultation, it's really important to note that some uh, women are already stabilised on an oral contraceptive pill, in which case those tests might not need to be done in the clinical setting, um, but uh, in the scenario that um, they might need to, uh, for example, have a, a sexually transmitted infection uh, and they need to be followed up or a, a cervical screening and, and breast screening and so forth. So, um GPs and pharmacists can really use that as a prompt to make sure that women are actually accessing other services as well. Um, That's why it's really critical to see the GP, um, but also making sure that pharmacy is uh, up to date and educated on how to do those as well to, to make sure that we are referring in the instance that the patient does need to be followed on.
0: Do you think we're going to see potentially this expanded? Because we've already seen a trial involving people able to access medication for UTIs, right? And now it's been ex- expanded into the contraceptive pill. Could we see more in the, in the years ahead?
3: Yeah, well, uh, we've already rolling out the urinary tract infection trial and that's already underway. We've had 3,000 consultations to date, which is really exciting. So women have been able to access care through their community pharmacist uh, in New South Wales. Uh, for for U- UTIs, in which case they can access antibiotics, uh, but also um, uh, if they're in the instance that they might need to be referred onwards, they are referred on to their GP or potentially even the emergency department if we suspect a kidney infection and those kinds of things. Um, but uh, we are moving forward and we do have some uh, new conditions being added next year in New South Wales, among other states. They've also announced some recent expansion of scope and they all slightly look a little bit differently, but uh, we are working towards uh, making sure that we can provide uh, um, individuals across all states with with that access component, particularly in regional and rural areas where it's a little bit harder to see a GP uh, and and you often have to head to the hospital, which might be uh, a little bit further away. So really important uh, key points there.
0: Well, uh, yeah, and I guess I mean the benefits in terms of the pressure on GPs being relieved is pretty obvious. Is there other benefits that you see with this kind of process uh, that 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 are going to really help people across the board?
3: I think the main thing is is accessibility and making sure that women can seek care in in a timely way. Sometimes it's a little bit tricky to get into the GP, uh, especially for things like uh, UTI, when it's a little bit harder uh when you actually need to see a GP more urgently than something say like the oral contraception Uh, but uh, we are making sure that uh, our our pharmacists are supported through that process and making sure that uh, we do provide very very safe and uh, quality and effective care uh, to ensure that uh, any, anyone accessing these services is, uh, is um, receiving that in a really yeah, appropriate way.
0: Well, look, we definitely appreciate you filling us in. Dr Sarah Deneen Griffin from the University of Newcastle, thanks very much for breaking that down.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: And some more messages coming through. Someone says, I've been working on a ship this year as well as living and working on an island in the Great Barrier Reef. Such a pain in the ass to get the pill on the regular. That's someone's opinion there. Another person, I'm a trans man who takes the pill and GP visits are pretty invalidating to me. So the less of those I have to do, the better. And someone else says, my GP's never done any sort of checks for my pill script, even after five years. All right, time to move on.
1: Hack. Offshore wind is jobs rich and energy rich. On Triple J.
0: Renewable energy is the future. It's part of Australia's plan to reach its net zero targets. We know that. Not just here. Around the world, countries are turning to wind, solar, hydro. But even though a lot of people are on board with the changes, it doesn't mean that they want these big developments in their backyard. And just like we've seen massive fights over the years with coal mines being opened near communities, there are big disagreements about some of the renewable energy projects too. People saying, not here. There's been a fair bit of chat about this lately. So our reporter Kira Proust has been speaking with some of the young Aussies in coastal communities that could be impacted by proposed offshore wind farms.
4: I'm out with a bunch of young surfers on the New South Wales central coast at a picturesque little village called Nora Head. The scenery here is just stunning. And heaps of people come to the region to go for a surf, to head out whale watching, or just to escape civilization. But some people are worried about the coastline's future because the federal government has set aside a slab of the ocean as an offshore wind zone.
2: Major concerns are ecological and marine impacts. They're unknown. We live on the whale migration route. No one knows how these floating wind turbines will impact the whales. Other marine life, such as dolphins, sharks. Yeah, it's very unknown.
4: Tom McMahon is one of the young surfers from Head. The offshore wind zone he's worried about is pretty big, covering nearly 2,000 square kilometres. It starts off the coast of Head and stretches all the way up to Port Stephens, which is north of Newcastle. Some young people in that community, like Rhys Westbury, also aren't happy with the plans. My stance isn't anti-renewable and it's not no to wind farms in general. I just believe that they're better suited on land as they have been trialled and tested on land for a lot longer than they have out there. The zone is a bit smaller than originally proposed by the federal government. They suggested starting at around 10 kilometres off Norahead's coastline, but community backlash and protests saw the zone pushed out to more than 50 k's from the shore. Tom reckons it's a win.
2: It's an amazing location. I can't believe it's the place I get to call home really. The whole landscape of Norahead would have changed drastically if the landscape was dominated by turbines at such a close denomination.
4: But the zone comes much closer to the Port Stevens area, with many still actively protesting there. And it almost will be a, a fence closing in, a communal natural wonderscape that could be open and free and easy for the marine life to travel up and back. There are now two declared offshore wind zones in Australia, this one in the Hunter and an area in the Bass Strait off Gippsland, Victoria. Another is proposed in the Southern Ocean off Victoria and South Australia, which is seeing similar community backlash. And there's one slated for the Illawarra coastline south of Sydney. Not everyone is opposed though. Jasmine Stewart, a renewable energy engineering student from Newcastle says these technologies are essential in Australia's transition away from fossil fuels. At the moment we're experiencing like extreme ocean temperatures, air temperatures, the climate crisis is feeling very real and so offshore wind is a solution to help us decarbonise which has never been more important. She says offshore wind farms will also provide a needed boost to jobs in places like The Hunter. It's a great opportunity to transition a lot of the jobs that have traditionally been in the coal industry. There's a lot of transferable skills that can be applied to offshore wind, which is a much more sustainable long-term industry. While Australia has been slow to take up offshore wind, it's much more popular overseas. There are already hundreds of fixed offshore wind farms in other countries, but the floating wind turbine technology being proposed by some companies in Australia is still relatively new. One of the Aussie companies wanting to get in on the offshore wind action is OceanX Energy. They're planning to build floating farms in several spots around Australia, including the Hunter. But CEO Andy Evans says there's still a lot more to do before any work actually takes place in the ocean.
1: We're still very early in the process but hopefully about to kick off five to seven years of detailed feasibility work. So a key part of what we're doing will include really detailed environmental studies Usually you'll have a minimum of two years worth of work looking at any existing wildlife, either in the water or above the water. You're looking at designing projects as well and understanding how many opportunities, and particularly jobs and investment, you can create for local regions.
4: Most young people I've spoken to say their biggest issue with the whole thing is that their concerns aren't being taken on board. Now the zone has been declared in the Hunter, they say it's really important that the affected communities are properly consulted and listened to.
2: The government needs to listen to communities like ours because they're ultimately bulldozing our opinions. We think that renewables are needed, but the government needs to respond in a responsible manner for the
4: benefit of our communities. I love this area, I love this coastline. It's so unique and it's rugged and, as of yet, untouched. And I can't wait for more tourists to come flock here and see, you know, the very thing we've been parading
0: around and why we want to see it safeguarded. Hack on Triple J. Kira Proust speaking to some young Aussies there in coastal communities. It's interesting, isn't it? We've got lots of messages on the text line. Aaron says, I've been working on wind turbines for years. We need to move away from fossil fuels urgently. We have the wind resource to make this transition. Shannon from Brisbane has a question, says, either land or sea, ecological systems are going to be impacted, so which life is more precious? That's her question. What do we do here? Let's ask Llewellyn Hughes, a professor at ANU. He researches the low-carbon energy transition, particularly looking at offshore wind power in the Asia-Pacific. Llewellyn, thanks very much for joining us on Hack. I wonder how do you negotiate this conflict with communities? Like being against a project doesn't necessarily mean you're against the technology, but people are just saying they don't want to miss out on the things they love about their home. How are we going to deal with this big issue?
1: Yeah, thanks very much. And it's terrific to have the uh, opportunity to come on and speak about what, uh, you know, is a a really, really important issue, you know, around balancing uh, the different interests that people have um, around, you know what is a an energy infrastructure project um, for offshore wind. So, in response to your question, how do we kind of balance these interests? Uh, you know, I think that the the, the person that we heard from uh, in the in the interview from the reporter made a really important point, which uh, around uh, listening, and uh, it's really crucial um, that uh, obviously we have um, a legal and regulatory processes in place which ensure that. are there opportunities for people to uh, to, to engage and express their views and have those views uh, considered in the process of um, implementing uh, any any kind of project, be it on land or sea, as as was mentioned uh, as well. And it's also really important, uh, I think, for industry to do the same, right? So one would be through government processes, that is law and regulation, um, but the other would be um you know, for the companies that were interested in developing these projects to to also engage with with communities to understand what concerns are and 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 see how to address those kinds of concerns. the The first project we've had in Australia, um you know, is down in Victoria, and I've been very impressed by the way that that project that's called Star of the South has been engaged in that in that kind of process. The other thing, I, last thing, I'll, to say on that, of course, um, is that, is that, uh, you know, as Andy Evans from OceanX said, you know, these are quite big projects that take a look quite a long time to develop. So there's going to be a lot of work which is going to be done collecting data about, um, you know, about the natural environment around there and 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 using that data as well. So I think there's a lot to come. Um, but, but listening and having processes in place is, is, you know, really the starter for offshore wind, just as it is for any other big infrastructure project.
0: Let's check in with Michael, who's called in, who is a farmer who could potentially be impacted by wind turbines uh, in his community. Michael, what's been your experience? Do you think that your community's concerns about these issues relating to wind turbines are being listened to?
1: Yeah,
4: look, I think uh, biggest problem up in the southern New England tablelands here is the way that uh, developers have created a lot of division between landholders, and um, there's been hasn't been a lot of transparency. Um, we've been very lucky in Walker, There's been a couple of community groups trying to uh, uh, educate everybody about what's going on, um, and and bringing in experiences from other communities across Australia about what has gone on. Yeah. But um, often a lot of the developments have gone completely under the radar because
0: developers have come in and basically uh, put gag orders on, on landholders after signing them up. So to- well- And and, and, and I mean, the point that you make as well, Michael, is that it's not that farmers are against, you know, renewable energy. And that's an important thing to consider as well. If you're against these projects, it doesn't necessarily mean you're against the technology. I want to go back to Llewellyn Hughes. Llewellyn, countries around the world are probably already well ahead of us. Is there stuff we can be learning from them?
1: Oh, look, I I definitely think so. And In response to uh, the the, the caller who was just on, I mean, you know, I I think it's it's incredibly important to have those kind of processes right. The only thing I would say with offshore wind, I guess, is that there is a federal law which has been put in place, which, you know, puts in place consultation processes um, and so it, it operates under a diff- some parts of the legal framework are a, a different right parts obviously come under the Conservation Act and so on. But there's a separate framework. The other thing is that these things take a really long time to scope out before you build them. So the timeframes within which those engagements are going to happen are much longer, I think, for offshore wind than you would see for onshore or for solar projects uh, as well. In terms of the region, so... Um, to me, the really big question or interesting question is what off role offshore wind is going to play for Australia? Mm. A lot of the countries in our region are, are already um operating offshore wind. We've got Japan, um South Korea are building out an industry. Um, Taiwan, uh, mainland China, uh, India is considering, Philippines and others as well. It's definitely
0: something that is, uh, you know, progressing very quickly all around the world. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Llewellyn Hughes from ANU, thank you very much for your take on that. Appreciate it. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.